BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Coming up in the science revolution, why did Trump delay? America deserves an answer. Professor Richard Wolff is here on his thoughts on the new coronavirus economy, the stimulus, and the 3.3 million people being laid off. Public Citizen's Peter May Barduk has a warning to pandemic profiteers and chief Washington analyst with the D.C. radio company, Victoria Jones, drops by to talk about COVID-19, U.K., Boris V. Trump, and others. The Associated Press recently did a good roundup story about how the Trump administration basically procrastinated for months before acknowledging the gravity of this situation that we're facing as a nation. And the article, and I'm going to share that with you in just a moment, it answers a lot of the what questions, you know, how they blew it and how Trump kept saying, oh, there's no problem. And then going and going and playing golf and oh, there's no problem. And then going and playing golf and oh, there's no problem. And then going and playing golf. And until finally it was like, oh, my God, there's a problem. And suddenly Fox News does a pivot so fast that Sean Hannity's head is spinning. So it answers all those what questions, you know, what Trump was doing, what the Trump administration was doing. That article doesn't talk about it, but others talk about how the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was lobbying Trump not to do anything, essentially, certainly not to use the Defense Production Act. We got a bunch of Democratic senators writing uh, just a rip them a new one letter to the Chamber of Commerce saying what's going on here. So we know the what's. What we don't know are the why's. Why would the Trump administration be this callous in their disregard for the lives of Americans? Why? I don't know the answer to the question, and maybe we can crowdsource the answer. Why did Trump procrastinate for two months? Was he trying to squeeze a few months of extra revenue out of his hotels? Was it that he was watching Fox News and they were saying there's no problem, and so he was saying there was no problem, so Fox was quoting him saying there's no problem, and then he was hearing himself being quoted on Fox, and so he really thought there was no problem. In other words, uh, an evil, deadly feedback loop between Trump and Fox News had opened up, just like a giant whirlpool, a huge vortex, you know, the Bermuda Triangle, like it just sucked the whole thing down into a black hole. Is that what happened? Was he creating a deadly right-wing media feedback loop that even went beyond Fox News? You've got all these right-wing radio shows and hosts. Up until last week, Rush Limbaugh was saying that this was a hoax and that it was being promoted by the Democrats to take down Trump. Was it so his billionaire buddies, so that Wilbur Ross and the guys in his cabinet, uh, Betsy DeVos, they're billionaires. Wilbur, Wilbur Ross is worth $3 billion. Betsy DeVos is worth $5 billion. They got a lot of money in the stock market. Was he trying to give his billionaire buddies time to unload their stocks, you know, like Richard Burr did or Kelly Loeffer, the two Republican senators who attended a security briefing that said this is going to get really, really bad, really, really fast, and they sold all their defense stocks. Kelly Loeffler, the wife of the president of the New York Stock Exchange, actually, according to some reports, bought stocks like Citrix that would be good for working from home. 
and perhaps Richard Byrd did as well. I mean, these, these reports are all kind of scattered right now. We're just starting to get the information. But was it to help his billionaire buddies? Was it because he knew that it would hit the economy, a hit to the economy that would hurt his reelection chances? And he thought maybe, just maybe, he could just bluster his way through this. I mean, he's done that his whole entire life, right? He just lies and BSs his way through things, and eventually they work out because people around him pick up the pieces and do things right, or he just declares bankruptcy and walks away. I mean, basically, that's been the two ways that Trump has succeeded through life. To the extent that you can say that he's a success, he's declared bankruptcy six times. That doesn't sound like a success to me. He's a serial failure. His father gave him $400 million and he pissed it all away. I mean, it's just... But the question that I'm asking is why did Trump delay? His delay is going to cost tens of thousands of lives, possibly hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of American lives. Deaths that are completely unnecessary, that are wreaking havoc on our healthcare system. I have two kids who are frontline, first-line healthcare providers. One of them is rotating to the ER in a week and a half. Here in Portland, we're hearing stories that the emergency room docks and uh, throughout the hospital, they don't have the personal protective equipment that they want. I mean, what's the deal here? Why did he decide to do this when he could see other countries getting this thing under control with social distancing and shutting their economies down? Why did he do this? I mean, there's perhaps a, a broader picture here. Remember in 2002, George W. Bush ordered hundreds of thousands, I believe it was hundreds of thousands of young American men and women into battle in Afghanistan first and then in Iraq without body armor and in Humvees that were not appropriately armored. So in those early days, you had all these fatalities and all these you know, wounded people, particularly wounded from IEDs, because George W. Bush just hadn't planned for the war. Remember his Secretary of Defense coming down Rumsfeld, coming out and saying, well, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you'd like to have. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that, that George W. Bush knew before he was elected that he was going to declare a war on Iraq. He had told that to Mickey Herskowitz a year before he was elected, that that's what you do. You become a wartime president. That's how you get reelected. And sure enough, that's how he got reelected in 2004. It was, we're at war. Stay with me. Trump is trying to do the same thing. Gee, I'm a wartime president now. Isn't this cool? Is this a Republican thing? I mean, I don't know if Franklin Roosevelt sent people into World War II without proper equipment. I don't think so. I think that within a matter of a week or two, he had every factory in America producing goods for the army, for the military and producing the things that people needed. Is this a Republican thing? I just don't get it. Is it that they don't care about the lives of the private first class who's, who's charging into battle in Iraq without body armor and an unarmored Humvee? That they don't care about the lives of the nurses and doctors who are treating people in the ERs? Because, hey, we're Republicans. We're rich. We've got our own private doctors and nurses. We've got private clinics. We have concierge medicine. Is that what's going on? Last week, there were reports about America's oligarchs getting on their private planes and flying to their private bunkers or their private islands with their own nurses and doctors and their own ventilators. 
States are being outbid in the marketplace for ventilators by rich people who want them in their homes. I mean, is this a Republican thing? Why? Why did Donald Trump delay? Why, why all these, quote, missteps? Why did he do this? And why does it look like he's about to return to a period of denial and doing nothing? Why? When that's going to probably produce more economic wreckage than what he's already done. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I mean, I have some theories, but I'm genuinely baffled by this. So testing blunders crippled U.S. response as coronavirus spread. This is the article I was telling you about from the Associated Press. They talk about this series of missteps. First of all, Trump earlier this month said that the COVID-19 test that the CDC had developed was perfect and that, quote, anyone who wants can get a test. But the AP points out it's been two months since the first case of this was confirmed in the United States and people still can't get tested. They write, in the critical month of February, that's the entire month of February, keep in mind Trump knew about this in December from his intelligence agencies. The world knew about it in January. The first cases were officially released by the Chinese government on January 1st. Or actually on December 31st, on, on, on New Year's Eve. So we knew about it in December. Trump knew about it in December. We knew about it in January. In the entire month of February, according to CDC data, the federal government processed 352 cases. That's an average of a dozen a day. The entire month of February. Now, it was the second week of January that South Korea started testing people. Or maybe it was the third week. Third week of January. February, we're doing nothing. Tedros Gehebris, head of the World Health Organization, says you can't fight a fire blindfolded. You need testing. But the early decision, this is again back to the AP article, the early decision not to use the test adopted by the World Health Organization, plus government guidelines restricting who could be tested, and delays in engaging the private sector by the Trump administration. All of these things combined to cause February to just slide by with probably what are you know several million infections. My best guess, based on the number of sicknesses and fatalities we're seeing, is that there's probably around 4 million Americans who are walking around with this virus right now, which means in three days it's going to be 8 million, which means three days after that it's going to be 16 million. Three days after that it'll be 32 million. I mean, you see how these numbers start cranking up every three days. And when you combine that with the messaging out of the White House, I mean, consider, on New Year's Eve, Chinese scientists informed the World Health Organization. Less than two weeks later, the Chinese had sequenced the virus. Within days of that, this is January 17th, German scientists had developed a test that could identify that virus, and the World Health Organization adopted that German test and published technical guidelines on January 17th. And by January 18th, they were working with private companies to produce the test. Private companies that could have sold the test into the United States had we decided to allow it here. That was January 17th. Keep in mind, the entire month of February, we tested on average a dozen people a day. We're a country of 330 million people. The CDC published the technical details on January 28th, two weeks late, 10 days after the WHO. 
A 35-year-old man was the first American to test positive. He arrived in Seattle on January 15th. Federal officials announced the results of his swab on January 21st. We're still back in January. And what did Donald Trump say on CNBC the following day after this guy had been tested? He said, we have it totally under control. It's just one person coming in from China. Everything's going to be fine. On January 30th, a week later, the day of the World Health Organization declared the outbreak a public health emergency. Trump again assured the American people that the virus was very well under control. He then went to Mar-a-Lago in Florida for the weekend and tweeted pictures of himself playing golf. And at the same time, U.S. citizens coming back from China were not being tested for the virus. Keep in mind, this is, this is January 30th. Four days after the U.S. declared a state of emergency, only 178 people had been tested. Four days after we declared a state of emergency. By mid-February, only about a half dozen state and local public health labs had reliable tests. By mid-February. Again, Trump knew about this in December. As more sick people sought to be tested, many states were forced to limit access because of the flawed CDC test. On February 24th, we're now in February, we're getting toward the end of February, people are really starting to get sick. Exasperated officials at the Association of Public Health Laboratories sent a letter to the FDA asking permission for state labs to develop their own tests. And a few days later, the FDA said on February 27th, said, okay, cool, develop your own tests, we can't handle this. On February 27th, three days after that, Donald Trump goes before the TV cameras and says, one day, it's like a miracle, it will just disappear. And at that point, experts say the opportunity to halt the relentless spread of the virus within the U.S. population had been lost. South Korea had their first confirmed case on January 20th, the same day we had our first confirmed case. On March 6th, Trump and Alex Azar went to the CDC and promised that the following week, the week before last, that there would be four million test kits distributed. He was lying through his teeth. Why did he do this? You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Is he because he thinks just kill off the old people? Is that what's going on? He's one of them himself. Larry in Coos Bay, Oregon. Hey, Larry, what are your thoughts? Hey, Tom. Well, there's a pattern, and it's not really a theory, but uh, we know that Republicans are prophets over people. I was in Michigan. I lived in St. Clair Shores, right above Detroit and Gross Point, during the Flint water crisis. And I worked with Clean Water Action, and we warned the legislator, and we warned the Governor Snyder at that point, you can't change that water over without first figuring out what the scenario is giving a polluted Flint River instead of a Lake Huron filtered water supply. And they ignored it. And then when they had to fix the pipes, I went up there and I was lobbying in um, Lansing. And you know what the Republican legislators told me? Off the record, of course. They're poor. They're black. They don't vote. They don't contribute to my campaign. It's cheaper to let it go. 100,000 people. If they get sick, we don't want to cover them. If they die, they'll try to sue us. It's the Pinto. It's the Pinto all over again. And then you look at what happened after Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Katrina. Everybody was left to wallow in their own stuff. And then you look at what happened in Puerto Rico after the hurricane. They're still not getting relief, and who knows what's going on in there right now. 
So again, it's a transactional scenario. It's too expensive to let these people be fixed. They don't want to fix them. And as far as the manipulation of the market, he just says, you know, I'm going to do this. It goes up. He tells his friends the night before, go in there and and you're going to have an opportunity to, to sell at a higher price than what you bought it at. And then I'm going to tank the market again. And you're going to, again, be able to rebuy what, you know, and, and this is the way they operate. It's, they don't care about people's lives, especially people who don't support them as far as their monetary donors are concerned. We'll see where it goes. Thanks a lot for the call. Chuck in Heritage, Pennsylvania. Hey, Chuck, what's on your mind today? I'm retired Air Force, worked in the supply system, and we dealt with the chem warfare gear. Now, mm-hmm. everybody in the military or everybody in the branch I was in had three sets of gear. Okay, which are heavy boots. You mean personal uh, protective equipment? Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be something that a doctor could wear, but the stuff's out there. Okay, there's huge warehouses full of this stuff out there. One of the last places I was at was Wright Patterson Air Force Base. They have huge warehouses of this stuff out there. I don't think it would work for the doctors, but very much of it could be used. Hey, the doctors are are clothing themselves in garbage bags right now, Chuck. I mean, you know, it's like anything is better than nothing. When I hear this, it's like this stuff's out there. Now, you had a hood, which had glasses in it. You had a mask, which had the filters in it. You had pants and a jacket and heavy boots and two pair of gloves. This stuff is out there. It just needs to be. I I am guessing, Chuck, that the military is hoarding this stuff because they're expecting that they're going to get hit. The idea of six-foot social distancing in the military is virtually impossible. Yeah. This is going to burn through the military, and it's going to burn through it fast. You've got at least three ships now, U.S. Navy ships, where this has been diagnosed mm-hmm. on the ships. When the Mercy and the Comfort pull into port, even mm-hmm. though they're going to be taking non-COVID emergency mm-hmm. cases, mm-hmm. it's going to get aboard those ships. It's going to rip through those ships. Trump yesterday said, I got 10,000 ventilators, but I'm not sending them to anybody because, you know, we may need them. He's basically hoarding stuff for when the red states start to melt down. Then he's going to ride to the rescue in the red states. He's perfectly willing to let the blue states die. I mean, that's really obvious, saying that in New York City they're selling these things out the back door. I mean, what kind of crap is that? When Trump said about, I'm not a supply clerk, the military is the biggest supply organization in the world. They have capabilities to do unbelievable stuff, move stuff all around the countries. I used to keep track. I did that, and I did parts for the C-130. We knew where every single part for every single C-130 was anywhere in the world. We could access that stuff in no time. And for Trump to say that He's not a supply clerk. He's not, but the military is, and they could do this. All he would have to do is let them do it. Between the two different things, this is what I experienced, and this is what I saw, and it's like, it's driving me nuts. It could be done. It could be done if he just wants to do it. Wow. Because you did work in the supply chain in the military. I did it for 19 years.
Tom Harbin here with you. On the line with us is uh, Peter Maybar-Duke. He is a human rights lawyer, but uh, more to the point right now, he's the director of Public Citizens Global Access to Medicines program. Citizen.org, of course, is their website. His Twitter handle is Maybar-Duke, M-A-Y-B-A-R-D-U-K, or at Public Citizen. Peter, welcome to the program. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So it has been reported that Gilead Sciences is developing one of the most promising antiviral drugs that may be effective against this particular uh, coronavirus. And I saw an article last week that they were trying to get a special kind of patent protection that would allow them to basically do massive price gouging. I saw an article yesterday that said that they'd backed off on that. What's the status of this? You want to explain to us what's, you know, to our listeners and viewers what's going on? Absolutely. So Gilead Sciences, a big pharmaceutical company based in California, tried to game the system, tried to get itself an extended monopoly on a drug that may be effective, we don't know yet, but may be effective against coronavirus. Sort of an extra two-year period in which they could exclude competitors and thereby keep prices high, protect their monopoly pricing power for a longer period of time. They tried to do this by telling the world and claiming to the Food and Drug Administration that COVID-19 is a rare disease. This is a special provision for companies that that make drugs that really don't have much commercial upside to them because they actually are for rare diseases, so they're not going to sell a lot of this stuff. Gilead tried to use that provision, and I guess you could argue, you know, five months ago, coronavirus was rare. Uh, They tried to use that provision to to feather their, their nest, to enhance their bottom line. Were they successful? Will they be successful? They have decided, well, there was, a, there was an uproar as soon as this was revealed. They have backed off uh, for now. See, it's a little bit of a public win, but it also shows sort of the environment that we're in, that, that there's an appreciation of how sensitive access to medicine issues are going to be, that it's actually very important now to take the next step. We need to be telling Gilead and really all the companies that are involved in, in production, potential treatments of vaccines, that we expect them to commit their science to the public domain. We expect them to say, we're not going to let commercial confidential information or patents or anything else get in the way of the world more rapidly developing the next treatment vaccine, building on the successes we have, or getting in the way of people's access to those treatments. So we can compensate companies with reasonable royalties for everything that they are doing. They will be fine, but we can't let the usual sort of monopoly scenario play out here. It would come at the cost potentially of a great many people's lives. Yeah. Your Public Citizens Global Access to Medicines program director and I saw a troubling news story a couple of days ago uh, suggesting that, uh, you know, this uh, uh, chloroquine, this, this drug that Donald Trump has been hyping, a study came out showing that it actually doesn't do anything. <laughs> this is a small Chinese study. It was 30 people. The study out of France that said that it did do something was only 40 people. This is a study of 30 people out of China, and they found that uh, people who were treated with hydroxychloroquine were no more likely than others to be put on bed rest oxygen and fluids, if they were simply put on those things, they recovered just as rapidly. But the article that I saw that really concerned me, because this is a drug that is important for a lot of other conditions from lupus to malaria, was that India has announced that as part of their countrywide shutdown, they're also blocking all exports of chloroquine. 
I understand that 95% of all of our prescription drugs in the United States, or at least our generic drugs, are manufactured in either India or China. And I'm wondering how much of the chloroquine that we sell in the United States or use in the United States is actually manufactured in India. Is it most of it? Is it a little bit of it? And what's happening with this uh, supply chain? I mean, uh, how long is it going to be before Americans start running out of pharmaceuticals? Well, we don't know, but it is an issue that a number of people are attentive to. Most pharmaceutical active ingredient worldwide is initially sourced from India and China, and then it is sort of a it is packaged and formulated and then distributed around the world. But the compounds are largely, not exclusively, but largely put together in India and China. So it's going to be important to keep those supply chains open. And one real challenge right now, as you note, is that we are seeing nationalistic response. Last I heard was 62 countries have implemented some kind of medical export restrictions for various products since coronavirus started taking off. So, you know, it's going to vary. Some of those responses may be appropriate, but it's really dangerous right now to look at this as sort of like a nation-by-nation problem because the supply chains are indeed global. And we do not have time, for example, to develop separate full supply chains and manufacturing capacities. We do need to keep flowing what we have. Yeah. My understanding is that back in the day, back in the 1960s or 70s or 80s, there was a massive tax break written into legislation for the pharmaceutical industry if they manufactured their drugs in Puerto Rico. And for decades, Puerto Rico was manufacturing central for the Western Hemisphere for pharmaceuticals. And that it was apparently during the Bush administration that they reversed that out. And that's when Puerto Rico really started, their economy started to collapse a, is that is my recollection correct? And B, if so, are any of those idled pharmaceutical factories in Puerto Rico able to be revived so that we can start manufacturing pharmaceuticals here in the Western Hemisphere? I don't know the specific Puerto Rico case, but here's another way of thinking about it. Rather than sort of hunkering down and saying we're only going to purchase products made in the United States and we're going to stop exporting elsewhere, We should just be saying we need the supply lines that are intact and we need to ramp up production radically, as you have said, everywhere, which may well include Puerto Rico. Where there is excess capacity or older capacity, it should be reignited. And one of the bills that I I think it's in one of the ones that has already passed, but it might be one of the ones that Congress is still debating. There are provisions to do some of that sort of thing. But we do need to go considerably further. You'll see in the headlines now a lot of discussion of what's called the Defense Production Act. We and many others are trying to push the Trump administration to invoke this existing law to ramp up the public production of masks, ventilators, and yes, uh, potential, if if we can find them, effective treatments of vaccines eventually. And we already need to be bringing those factories online now if we are going to produce and ensure an adequate supply in some matter of months. So that's very important. It is part of the response. We both need to sort of curb pharmaceutical industry price gouging and get them to commit their science to the public interest. And we need to ramp up the public response, both through public production and for using this law to have companies prioritize their government contracts and bring a greater supply online. So it is sort of like all the world needs to move together on this. All countries need to be contributing as much as they can to production, new production capacity, even as we keep the supply chain that we have. To the best of your knowledge, is the Trump administration, or or for that matter, Congress, doing anything to promote the prescription that you just laid out 
No pun intended. They are sort of uh, back and forth on it e- each day. As usual, it's difficult to parse what the Trump administration is actually doing, and they'll, they'll sort of say opposite things on, on a given day. But the pressure has increased quite a bit, and I think the trend is toward more use of this productive capacity. We just need to move them. We need them to move faster and more broadly, both on that production front and on the sort of reasonable pricing of product. Could they use the Defense Production Act and simply say to the big pharmaceutical companies in America, you will start manufacturing this stuff in the United States next week? Uh, yes, they could. It's all, you know, there are there are legal wrinkles to be sure, but uh, the short answer is yes, they could. And, you know, of course, it depends on like which products we can bring online where and sort of dotting I's and crossing T's. But broadly speaking, the government can tell the companies to do that. It can also do it itself. So, for example, if the government wants to produce remdesivir, this Gilead product that we're talking about, it can do it in government factories. And it can tell Gilead to move more production along uh, as well. There are particulars, but I I think what matters for all of us is we need that clarion call that says, Trump administration, you need to do this as broadly as you can right now. All our lives are at stake. Right. And this remdesivir, uh, wasn't that developed with something like $19 million of U.S. taxpayer money? Yeah, more than that, at least $60 million. There may be other ways to uh, count it in in the clinical trials. Yeah, I think it may be a higher number. But like right now, there are ongoing trials, I think, uh, at NIH and and CDC. So like we, the people, are already paying for the development of that drug. Gilead is putting money in, too, but it's a joint venture. And, you know, so so even if it weren't a crisis, we should have a say in, in how that product is priced and distributed. Remarkable. Peter Mead Barduk, the director of Public Citizens Global Access to Medicine Program and a human rights lawyer. Citizen.org is the website. May Barduk, M-A-Y-B-A-R-D-U-K is his Twitter handle. Peter, thank you for dropping by. Thanks so much. Good talking with you. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know... I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, it, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think it's the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Natural CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's NUleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NULeafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NULeafnaturals.com. That's NULeafnaturals.com. That's NULeafnaturals.com. Code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. NULeafnaturals.com. We are now past 1,000 people dead in America. Expect to see that number start doubling every few days. This is going to get really grim. This already is really grim in a lot of places in the United States. It's going to start getting really grim really fast in New Orleans, across the state of Florida. This is going to be sweeping across red states. The red states are just a little behind the blue states. The blue states are the population centers. The blue states are where the big international airports are. The blue states are where the virus seems to be coming into the country more than the red states because the red states tend to be low population states. 
without much economic activity. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's how the Republicans are able to bamboozle people. So this is going to get bad. And uh, which I guess we've known all along. So meanwhile, we discovered today that back in 2016, after the 2014 Ebola outbreak, the Obama White House had the National Security Council. Now, this was back when the National Security Council had a pandemic response team. Trump fired those people two years ago. But that pandemic response team put together a, a manual that literally is called the pandemic playbook. What to do if a pandemic happens, whether it's SARS or whether it's a horrible form of influenza or whether it's some ancient virus that just you know, broke out of the ice in Antarctica or whatever. It's literally called the National Security Council's pandemic playbook. And it has questions like, quote, is there sufficient personal protective equipment for healthcare workers who are providing medical care? If the answer is yes, what are the triggers to signal exhaustion of supplies? Are additional supplies available? If the answer is no, should the strategic national stockpile re release personal protective equipment to the states? Another question, what is our level of confidence in the case detection rate? Is diagnostic capacity keeping up? So somebody yesterday when Politico published the fact that the Trump administration was given this handbook when they came into office in 2017, in January 2017, they knew about this handbook. They were, they were, they were briefed on it. It's only a couple of years old. So the Trump administration knew about this. So what did they say when Politico called them up and said, hey, what about this handbook? They said, we are aware of the document, although it's quite dated. The plan we are executing now is a better fit. Right. Or as uh, Laura Clausen over at Daily Coast says, ha, 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 sob. Trump fired the pandemic response team. The Department of Health and Human Services staged a simulated pandemic last fall but still managed to be unprepared when this one hit. The Department of Homeland Security stopped holding pandemic simulations, part of Trump firing those people. And, and why did Trump you know, fire both pandemic response teams, the National Security Council and the Department of Homeland Security? Why did he fire them both? Why did they shelf this pandemic handbook? Probably because it was all done by the Obama administration. Anything done by America's first black president was something that Donald Trump was not going to touch. That's what it comes down to. It had cooties or whatever, it, you know, however he characterizes this in his racist little mind. Meanwhile, the coronavirus does not slow down Trump's regulatory rollbacks. This is a piece in the New York Times. President Trump is pushing ahead with major reversals of environmental regulations. They are working to complete a half dozen significant rollbacks over this month. Weaken automobile fuel efficiency standards, loosen controls on toxic ash from coal plants, relax restrictions on mercury emissions, weaken consideration of climate change and environmental reviews for infrastructure projects. Uh, the aggressive timeline is aimed at shielding the policies from easy reversal if Democrats win the White House or control of the Senate in the 2020 election. Several agency officials said they were surprised that political leaders had shown no sign of letting up amid the pandemic. A dozen federal workers who all spoke on the condition of anonymity of the New York Times all described a relentless atmosphere at the EPA and the Interior Department. 
The administration understands the electoral map has turned against it, said Richard Rebus, says, a professor of environmental law at New York University. The administration's industry allies applauded the push to complete deregulation. David Hayes, the director of state energy and environmental impact at the New York University School of Law, said this administration is essentially taking advantage of the fact that the public is distracted and is, in fact, disabled from fully engaging against this ideological push. So Trump is making the air more poisonous, the water more poisonous. He's making pollution cheaper for companies that do pollute and uh, rolling back the regulations that would protect you from having your child be neurologically damaged by mercury or having you be poisoned by coal ash in ways that cause cancer. This is a Republican administration. There's no doubt about it. Totally in the bag with these big polluting corporations. Along with us is Victoria Jones, our old friend, a chief Washington analyst with the DC Radio Company out of Washington, DC. Her Twitter handle is Victoria Jones DC. Victoria, welcome back. Hi, Tom. It's great to have you with us. So just a few weeks ago, I was reading news stories about how the UK's health minister was telling Boris Johnson, we should just let this run through the British public. You know, some old people will die, but beyond that, we'll all have herd immunity, and that'll be a wonderful thing. And that kind of thinking was what informed Boris Johnson's procrastination on this. And there's some evidence that Boris Johnson had been talking to Donald Trump and it might have informed Donald Trump procrastinating ever since late December, early January, when his spy agencies told him this was coming. What do we know about this? I don't know what, if anything, informed Donald Trump's thinking. Apparently not the 2016 document that they saw in 2017, which Politico had uh, uncovered from the NSC, saying this is a playbook for dealing with pandemics. Boris Johnson, who has got libertarian tendencies, apparently liked the idea of herd immunity, which the UK's chief scientists were touting all over the airwaves. And not surprisingly, Britons were listening to this and going, herd immunity, that sounds like cows and sheep. And they were looking at each other like, we're not actually sheep. We don't even like the idea of sheep having to all die to get herd immunity. And this really went down like the Edson account. Like, you know, what's the worst advertising account ever? This is how this one went down. So then uh, number 10 Downing Street started uh, like blaming its communications team for why did you let this happen? Well, because they let this happen because it was the biggest disaster ever. I understand that in the UK, particularly in, in London, they're starting to see apparently in terms of increases in infections and ICU hospitalizations and deaths that the UK is now probably just a few weeks behind New York City. Do I have that right? Yeah, the National Health Service hospitals are calling it a tsunami. Boris Johnson gave a speech on Monday, a short speech on Monday. It was a good speech, actually. I watched it. It was a good speech announcing really a total lockdown, very severe lockdown on the UK, even to the extent they've now got drones and helicopters going over some areas 
say, well, is that like a legitimate dog walk? No, it's not. Well, you've got to go back. They're even giving police powers to arrest people under certain circumstances if, if they're breaking the lockdown. Um, I would like to give you two pieces of good news out of the UK before we get into some more quite extraordinary news about Boris Johnson. Two pieces of really quite good news. One is something that hasn't happened yet, and it is happening at 4 p.m. Eastern today, and it's called Clap for Carers. And all over the U.K. today at 8 p.m. their time, 4 p.m. our time, everybody in the U.K. or just about everybody is going to clap for everybody in the National Health Service because uh, they are just so incredibly grateful. They're going to go outside onto their balconies everywhere they are. So if people in the U.S. feel the same way about the workers in the National Health Service, they can join in. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that about a day ago, the National Health Service said, we need volunteers. We need an army of volunteers. And they gave four categories of help. If you're over 18 and healthy, obviously. Within 24 hours, they had over 500,000 volunteers to help. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's extraordinary. So you said you've got some more news about Boris Johnson. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is very interesting. The European Union reached out to Britain. They've got a scheme in the EU to source life-saving ventilators to treat coronavirus. And the idea is that the EU uh, countries are all banding together to get the best price on ventilators. And Boris Mm -hmm. Johnson has said, no, we're not going to be part of that because we're no longer a member and we're making our own efforts. And critics mm-hmm. accusing Boris Johnson of putting Brexit over breathing because they're saying oh, wow. you can't get the same price. They've offered to help. Sorry. I understand that Lord Dyson, the guy who invented the vacuum cleaner or the, his version of it and, and owns the Dyson vacuum cleaner company, has invented a ventilator. He's going to go into production in the next few weeks in the UK. He's British. It's going to be less expensive than regular ventilators, and he thinks he can have 10,000 of them made over the next few months. Uh, do you, are you familiar with that? I've heard about that. So that Might that be part of Boris Johnson's math? I think it might be part of his math. There are various things that I think are part of his math, but I think critics are saying a big part of his math is that just this go-it-alone spirit, we're just doing it ourselves. And uh, a lot of critics are, are really saying, this is not the time. You know, you, you, if you can get a better price by banding together and people are offering to help, why, why wouldn't you do this? Yeah, yeah, it, it makes sense. And you said there was another, yeah. there was more Boris Johnson news beyond that? The other piece of news relates to the, the Labour leadership battle that is mm-hmm. still going on. It's hard to believe that this leadership election is still going on. It's been four months now that there's been an election going on to replace Jeremy Corbyn at the top of the Labour leadership. Of course, that's the opposition party. Jeremy Corbyn had his last prime minister's questions yesterday, and he took Boris Johnson to task, actually, over self-employed assistance pretty effectively. And this leadership contest will go on until April the 2nd. They're still voting. And there's some criticism within the Labour Party itself as to why couldn't they speed it up 
so that they could actually have a new leader in place to effectively take on Boris Johnson and not have a lame duck. And that's been a big discussion point within the Labour Party. Interesting. Interesting. I know you're a cat person. We were browsing around YouTube yesterday, Louise and I, and discovered videos for cats. Most of them are British, actually. And they're people throwing uh, food on tabletops and in outdoor settings and, and birds and mice and squirrels coming and snatching the food. And our cat, Ketty, spent literally five <laughs> hours watching this video yesterday. And then he missed two meals. He would not leave the bed. Even when the TV was turned off, he sat there for another two hours waiting for it to come back on again. And then this morning I turned it on and he sat there for another few hours. So you've got to check this thing out, Victoria. It's uh, Wow. Kind of the, that's, yeah. the, that's the answer. Because you're the one because who told us about shoestrings. Yeah, shoestrings are, are the other thing. But I want to get my cats playing tic-tac-toe because I've been reading about all these tic-tac-toes, people playing that <laughs> with their cats. Seriously? Seriously? Yeah, people are laying out tic-tac-toe on the floor and they, they play it with their cats. Sometimes the cats win. That's funny. We've been making jokes about, you know, our cat is now addicted to these videos. And, you know, should we put screen time limits on him? And now another one of our cats is starting to watch them along with him. So two of our three cats are sitting there in front of the TV going, oh, wow. Anyhow, Victoria Jones with the DC Radio Company. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you, Tom. Great talking to you. Her Twitter handle is Victoria Jones DC. The three-ring circus that is the Trump administration continues to roll along. Jared Kushner involved himself in the negotiations between this ventilator company, Ventac, and General Motors to uh, retool one of their factories in the Midwest to make these ventilators and apparently uh, blew up the negotiations. It was supposed to be announced, was never announced. And then last night on Tannity, Trump was saying, ah, we don't need that many ventilators, these hospitals. Most hospitals only have one, you know, or two. Some have none, which is all lies, of course. So a little bit ago, uh, Donald Trump, I don't know if he watched uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo's uh, thing on TV or what, but Trump tweeted and ordered GM and Ford to start making ventilators and ordered GM to make them at a factory that they have closed and sold to another company. So it's like, really? This guy so doesn't know what he's doing. He really thinks he can run a country like he ran his business, like he's a king. And he just makes decisions and, hey, you know, if things don't work out, just get another $100 million from daddy. And then when you burn through daddy's money, well, you just declare bankruptcy. And when that bankruptcy isn't enough, you declare bankruptcy again. And when that's not enough, you declare bankruptcy a third time. And then a fourth time. And then a fifth time. And then a sixth time. That's what Trump does. He kills everything he touches. And his grifter family. Oh, my God. And here we are. Here we are. We're all stuck with this guy. And it's not just him. It's the grifters who follow him around. The, the rest of the Republicans. This is uh, Governor Tate Reeves, is the governor of Mississippi. After a number of his states, Tupelo, for example, Mayor Jason Shelton had put into place a basically a shelter in place or a, you know, don't go out if you're not an essential employee. So he was protecting his city. So then the governor comes out and says, no, you can't do that. Cities in Mississippi, you can't shut down. I'm unshutting you. And, uh, Moss Point Mayor Mario King had closed restaurants for dining in, salons, barbershops, houses of worship, and more. 
Uh, this is from Laura Clausen over Daily Kos. Reese's order was completely makes our order null and void, said Mayor King. So barbershops, so this is, this is Mississippi today. So barbershops and salons are open today. People are actually at church making up Bible studies lost on Wednesday. So they're having Thursday Bible studies. I guess this was yesterday, actually. There are restaurants that reopened their dining services today, Mayor King told the Mississippi Free Press. I understand they're just trying to make a dollar, but if one person sneezes who has COVID-19 and someone else comes in, they're possibly exposed to that. So his order puts our people at risk. And he described uh, Governor Reed's action as complete foolishness and foolery and that he's embarrassed not just as a mayor, but as a citizen of Mississippi. We are, said Mayor King of Moss Point, he said, we are the laughingstock of the country because our governor has enacted an order that not only does not protect the safety and welfare of the people, but puts Mississippians in harm's way. Mississippi had uh, this morning 485 cases of COVID-19. 108 of them were brand new yesterday. They're just starting to ride the roller coaster up. And nobody has seen it flatten, and nobody has seen it go down in the United States. And we have more cases in this country than any other country in the world because Trump refused for two months to do anything about a disaster that he saw coming. Now, this is an old Republican trick. When George W. Bush was made president by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2000, in January of 2000, when the transition happened, President Clinton told Bush personally, Sandy Berger told us all this on on this program. Sandy Berger was national security advisor to Clinton. Clinton told Bush, Osama bin Laden is coming to attack America. Vice President Al Gore told Dick Cheney, Osama bin Laden is coming to attack America. Sandy Berger told Bush's national security advisor, Condoleezza Rice, bin Laden is coming to attack the United States. And Trump said, oh, you know, this is Clinton stuff. You know, these guys are obsessed with bin Laden. Don't do anything. He put Cheney in charge of it. And Cheney's task force on this issue literally did not meet until the end of August. Two or three weeks before 9-11. Literally did not meet. Completely dropped the ball. No interagency coordination, nothing. This is what Republicans do. What was Dick Cheney doing during those nine months or the time that they were sworn in until 9-11 happened? He had convened the Energy Task Force. He was literally carving up Iraq and deciding which oil fields in Iraq were going to be sold to which companies. You know, not making this stuff up. And Trump, same thing. You know, which one of his crony corporations are going to get his bailouts? Who's going to get money from the federal government? How can they figure out a way to make money off this? It's obscene. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.